This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we feature historian, prolific writer, and longtime political activist Mike Davis, reading from his book In Progress called Star-Spangled Leviathan, An Economic History of American Nationalism. This reading was organized by Jordan Camp of Trinity College in honor of Fred File, the beloved, passionate, and acclaimed teacher, writer, and professor of English and American Studies at Trinity College, who died too young in 2005. Fred collaborated with Mike on the Verso Haymarket series, The Year Left. Mike's talk on his new book is called 13 Jealous Republics, The Myth of American Genesis. We are fortunate to bring it to you, the listener, when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. Today, we welcome back Mike Davis, the prolific writer, historian, political activist, urban theorist, and author of dozens of books, most recently, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s, co-authored with our own John Wiener. Mike is writing a new book on the genesis of American nationalism called Star-Spangled Leviathan, An Economic History of American Nationalism. Here he reads from the chapter... 13 Jealous Republics, The Myth of American Genesis, and a selected discussion follows. This talk that we're bringing to you was sponsored by Trinity College, organized by Jordan Camp, and dedicated to Fred File, the beloved Trinity English and American Studies professor, writer, public intellectual on the street and the page, troublemaker, and beloved collaborator with Mike on the Verso Haymarket series called The Year Left. Fred File died too young in 2005. Check out his writings, including Another Tale to Tell and White Guys, Studies in Postmodern Domination and Difference. And we now join Jordan Camp introducing Mike Davis. Mike needs no introduction. His contributions to the fields of labor history, political economy, and urban ecology are legendary. He's the author of over 20 formative books, including Prisoners of the American Dream, City of Courts, Ecology of Fear, and more recently, Old Gods, New Enigmas, and with John Wiener, Set the Night on Fire, LA in the 1960s. As an essayist, Mike has also penned some of the most important conjunctural interventions of our time. His new left review essays on the 1992 Los Angeles Rebellion, which took place 30 years ago, continue to be foundational. His 1995 Nation article, Hell Factories in the Fields, a Prison Industrial Complex, is a touchstone for movements to abolish police and prisons. On January 7th, 2021, one day after the siege on the U.S. Capitol, he published Riot on the Hill in the New Left Review sidecar about white nationalism and extreme socioeconomic turbulence. His other writings on global pandemics, climate change, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine define the challenges of our moment. Mike has inspired and nurtured an entire generation of radical intellectuals. He was a longtime member of the New Left Review Editorial Collective and co-editor with Michael Springer of Verso's Haymarket series. There, he published some of the most important voices in history, American studies and politics, including Manning Marable, 
Hazel Carby, Stephanie Kuntz, Michael Denning, David Rodiger, Alexander Saxton, Michelle Wallace, Clyde Woods, and Fred File. That series honored the Haymarket Martyrs and the legacy of global solidarity that we celebrate today on May Day. Amidst a wave of strikes at Amazon, Starbucks, medical centers, and educational institutions, and a resurgence of socialist consciousness, Mike's work continues to agitate, educate, and inspire. We are so delighted and honored to welcome Mike, a MacArthur Fellow, winner of the 2020 Lannan Foundation Prize, and distinguished professor emeritus of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside, to speak to us today. Mike's talk is entitled, 13 Jealous Republics, The Myth of American Genesis, an excerpt from his new book in progress, Star-Spangled Leviathan, An Economic History of American Nationalism. If you have questions, please put them in the chat and a Q&A will follow his talk. This talk is in honor of the late Fred Fowle, beloved teacher, writer, and professor of English and American Studies here at Trinity College. Without further ado, Mike Davis. Well, I'm very grateful to Jordan, Christina, and all the other folks at Trinity who've given me this opportunity to honor my friend Fred File, someone who brought such great passion and nobility to teaching. Now, I'm going to be reading an excerpt from a chapter in this sprawling and perhaps forever unfinished project on the economic history of American nationalism. But to give you a little taste of what the book is about and what it's organizing themes on, I'm going to read just a short snippet from the introduction to the draft of the book. The history of pre-20th century U.S. nationalism might be written largely in terms of empire and expansion interaction with the British world system, or the emerging national mentalities expressed in literature and popular culture. One could build an analysis around sectional conflict, racial doctrines, or founding ideas. With great justification, such a history could focus on the dialectics of conquest and the fate of First Nations. In some measure, all these aspects are represented in this book, but I'm especially interested in the political economy of U.S. nationalist doctrines, that is to say the different strategies of nation building and their accompanying self-images that competed with one another during the first 130 years of national history. By treating nationalism as politics rather than simply as ideology or identity, it becomes feasible to lift the hood and examine the coalitions of interest that powered particular national projects. My methodological sympathies, I must warn you, spontaneously ally with those of old school economic historians like Francois Cruzet. Personally, he once wrote, I'm tempted to exhaust all economic explanations before resorting to sociocultural factors, quote. The problem, of course, is the major problems of American history, such as sectionalism, religion, and race, are both economic and sociocultural and always political. 
Moreover, there is no Chinese wall between nationalism and politics per se. Every policy and special pleading can be wrapped in the flag. That is why clarity of definition is obligatory at the outset. I focus in particular on programmatic or doctrinal nationalism, which encompasses the creative responses of the political system to the inherent instability of a national ethos based on economic growth, and secondly, to the volcanic pulses of economic and ethnosocial restructuring that characterize U.S. history. The episodic political reconstruction of nationalism in well-established nation states never been formulated as a topic in nationalism studies. But in the U.S. case, at least, it's crucial to distinguish between nationalism and its curricular aspect as ideology, only vaguely related to policy, and nationalism as an action program or doctrine which advances specific policies. The Constitution created a formidable legal defense perimeter for slavery and commercial wealth, but provided no mechanism for fashioning national strategy in the manner, say, of a British war cabinet. In the anarchic U.S. federalism of the early 19th century, power was organized by elite factions battling for control of state legislatures and thereby the U.S. Congress. Even after the emergence of a modern party system in the 1840s, congressional decision-making was constant brokerage of conflicting geoeconomic interests that undermine genuinely national policies. Although the executive branch has frequently been characterized as an elected kingship, only Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, and Lincoln exploited the possibilities of presidential power during crisis. The strong presidency, for the most part, has been a 20th century invention. Doctrines were episodic attempts to overcome these centrifugal forces and achieve national unity through revisions of citizenship and suffrage of the economic role of the federal government, major foreign interests and sovereign claims, expenditures on the army and navy, the legal status of First Nations, the law of slavery, the interpretation of the Constitution, and so on. They were genuinely nationalist rather than merely national because each doctrine was perforce a design for further continental expansion, as well as a strategy for confronting the foreign power the powers perceived as blocking the path and manifest destiny, Britain above all, but also Spain, France, and Mexico. In Western Europe, Canada, and Australia, partisan interpretations of national futures are usually elaborated in party platforms and economic ideologies. Under peaceful parliamentary circumstances, it is rare for national leaders to attempt to change fundamental national self-conceptions. Margaret Thatcher is the most obvious exception. American presidents and congressional leaders, on the other hand, have been called time and time again in crisis to sort out a chaos of ideas and policies and polemicize new or renewed national purposes. In many respects, this has been a reflection of the absence or weakness of institutionalized values and strategies. The complex coalitional character of the major parties has always made ideological discipline around the programmatic nationalism difficult, except for brief wartime episodes. 
So presidents, the leaders of Congress, have had to periodically bring down new tablets from Mount Sinai, manifestos for change in national direction. These documents sometimes amended or edited ideological nationalism, but their philosophical integrity was less important than their success in temporarily charging new agendas with patriotic fervor. But the latter was sometimes difficult resource to mobilize, with no credible external threat to national sovereignty after 1814, apart from the brief but lethal danger of a British intervention in 1862-1863. American nationalism was an anvil without the usual foreign hammer, a condition that only magnified the importance of internal racial and ethnic othering to the maintenance of national identity. In the antebellum period, Hamiltonian federalism, Jefferson's physiocratic empire for liberty, the Calhoun doctrine, manifest destiny, and free soil republicanism were programmatic nationalisms. But the paradigmatic example was Henry Clay's famous American system, a systematic design for national banking, internal improvements, external tariffs, industrial tariffs, and a Western Hemisphere coalition of republics to counter Europe's holy alliance. The congressional leaders declared goals for economic independence in Britain, westward expansion, and sectional harmony through commercial interdependence. In short, he proposed a home market-centered strategy of economic development, which he justified as a renovation, not a replacement of Jeffersonian principles. With the collapse of federalism after 1814, these ideas provided a policy framework for more than a decade of one-party government by the National Republicans, the majority faction of the old Jeffersonian alliance. Later, as the cotton moon induced Clay's southern allies, above all, John C. Calhoun, to renounce their shared developmental vision and embrace free trade, the American system became the economic nationalist foundation for the new Whig Party. As Merrill Peterson characterized it, quote, the American system is not so much a philosophy seeking embodiment in public policy, as it was a set of policies with distinct interests behind them, seeking the dignity of philosophy. Doctrines sometimes failed as the 1850s attempt to divert sectional antagonism into foreign expansion and change as quickly as presidencies or be stored away for future use, such as Wilsonian internationalism in the 20th century. Programmatic nationalism can be successfully transformed into curricular nationalism, as in the case of Lincolnian ideology during Reconstruction, it suddenly faced revision or overthrow. The stunning success, for example, of the South in the 1890s in refighting and winning the Civil War on the terrain of historical memory and popular culture. Although partisan agendas are always popularized through a mixture of rhetorics, nationalism is the ultimate court of appeal. Now the extract from the section. This is from the fourth chapter. In 1888, Alvin Woodbury Small, who a few years later would help found North America's first department of sociology at the University of Chicago, 
was teaching at small Colby College in central Maine, near where he grew up. Part of a new generation of American scholars flocking to German universities, the most advanced in the world. It studied socioeconomics and politics at Leipzig and Berlin, before going on to win a doctorate in history at John Hopkins. At Colby, the college had printed a draft of his dissertation, The Growth of American Nationality, which he used as an undergraduate textbook. His course was a frontal assault on the dominant narrative of the nation's founding, especially the almost universally accepted role of the revolution in creating a modern national identity. New England students of the present generation, with rare exceptions, he told the students, bring to the study of American history the almost impregnable prejudice that our nationality was related to our independence, as was Athena to Zeus. The more obvious and immediate object of this course is to show that one myth is as fabulous as the other, quote, Few historical propositions are more variously and conclusively demonstrable, he went on, and that neither the Declaration of Independence nor the Constitution was intended by the people as a proclamation of nationality in the sense since established. Small also critiqued the fetishism of the Constitution and the fallacy that, quote, the political character of the people of America was to be irreparably settled by dramatical and logical and legal interpretation of certain documents. Good. A child of the Civil War, born in 1854, he insisted that that great conflict had been the true forge of U.S. nationality and nationalism. His provocative thesis became an early part of the critical arsenal of present historians who shifted the debate away from the romantic ethno-racial idealizations which infused George Van Cross's enormous and popular histories of the colonial and revolutionary era. Van Cross, also Secretary of the Navy under Pope, and initiated the war with Mexico, exercised with a commanding influence over 19th century American historical writing, glorified the revolution as the culmination of human history. But Bancroft saw the teleological march of Anglo-Saxon liberty from the dark German forest to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. The progressives, in contrast, focused on political economy and interest group dynamics, especially the deeply rooted conflict between agrarians, large and small, and the coastal commercial elites. Though a majority of them were like Bancroft, Jeffersonians and Jacksonians in spirit, their methodologies rooted in the German idea of scientific history were totally divergent. Persistent items on their agenda over the years were debates about the existence of pre-federalist nationalism and the class politics of the Confederation. The line of descent from Small's thesis can easily be traced through the works of Arthur Schlesinger Sr., Carl Becker, and above all, Merrill Johnson, whose The Articles of Confederation in 1940 argued that the articles were, quote, the embodiment and government form of the philosophy of the Declaration of Independence. In the early 1960s, however, the influence of the progressive school had faded, and its focus on economic forces was widely disavowed as semi-Marxist. In contrast to Small and Jensen, it became almost reflexive, 
a new generation of eminent historians, Henry Bailey, Jordan Wood, and many others. It really differed amongst themselves as whether the revolution was itself the origin of the awakening or the culminating point of a long organic process of national self-identification that had begun in the late 17th or mid-18th centuries. The idea of a nationalism of deep 17th centuries has had innumerable iterations in historical literatures, including the standard works by James Trussler, Adams, Carl Breitenbaugh, Alan Evans, Ed, Edmund Morgan, and many others. This has been amended in more recent studies to move the founding moment of American nationalism forward to the mid-18th century. Alan Heimer, John Behrens, and others have focused on the transcolonial Great Awakening of the 1740s, which so leaves the unique American dispensation. Quote, the idea of America's New Jerusalem, Jeremiah tradition, the deification of the founding fathers, confused international colonial expectations, and providential historiography. Others have put the emphasis instead on the experience of the Seven Years War, the French and Indian War, which led to unprecedented cooperation and fraternity between colonial militias. The resulting intercolonial networks became the framework for the post-1763 struggles against parliamentary supremacy. The resulting intercolonial networks became the framework for the post-1763 struggles against parliamentary supremacy. In the course of coordinating the non-importation movement, writes T.H. Breen, that constructed imagination, a nation that was not yet a nation, Carl Breidenbaugh and Harry Ward even pointed out why that it was an increasing sense of national community amongst colonists, which led to the American Revolution. Thus, according to this neo-Bancroftian interpretation, the militias that faced the Redcoats at Breedsville in 1775, or the Continentals who camped in hunger and squalor at Valley Forge during the long winter of 1788, were already Americans. On the other hand, other historians proposed that they became Americans precisely through these ordeals. The War of Independence is estimated to involve several hundred thousand patriots in arms at one time or another, mostly in brief militia service. And these veterans became the missionaries of nationhood. Patrick Henry's famous declaration at the First Continental Congress, I'm not a Virginian, but an American, is supposedly the watchword. But neither of these neo-Bancroftian narratives holds up well in the light of alternative scholarship. As far back as the 1990s, Jack Green, John Philip Reed, Paul Mayer challenged the idea of proto-nationality. They painted a picture of a revolt driven by intense colonial identification as Britons, whose traditional rights, like those of the radical Whig allies in the home country, were being trampled upon by a despotic faction of parliament. In this view, the primary pan-colonial identity was shared imperial Britishness, not in an imminent or teleological Americanism, we find in a separate new world crucible. Indeed, Green finds little evidence at all for an American national consciousness before the revolutionary period, or the belief, quote, that colonial history 
had an inner propulsion toward modern nationalism. John Muirin agrees to the extent that the settlers were self-conscious nationalists. They saw themselves as part of an expanding British nation and empire, loyalty to colony and loyalty to Britain. Meanwhile, solidarity between colonies, all competing with one another for frontier land and commerce, were lucid. Quote, almost every proposal for American Confederation fell flat. French saber-rattling in the Allegheny Valley and the imminent threat had not compelled British colonists to meaningfully consider Benjamin Franklin's Albany Plan of Union in 1754. And on the eve of the revolution, New York and New Hampshire were violently skirmishing over control of the Green Mountains, while settlers from Connecticut and Pennsylvania were ambushing each other in the Wyoming Valley. In part, this disunity was the direct result of the largely entrepreneurial origins of the individual colonies and the absence of any pan-colonial system of British rule. It's D.W. Meinig writes, until 1768, imperial affairs were primarily the responsibility of a board of trade and plantations, suggesting that this American empire was just the product of a series of uncoordinated speculative adventures rather than that of a comprehensive strategic design. Satisfied for almost a century with de facto home rule and disinclined brotherhood, the colonies were blindsided by the campaign to suddenly centralize control over the empire. They initially joined in celebrating the intensified British nationalism after 1740 unaware that it was actually an English patriotism that did not set equal places for either Americans or Protestant Irish at its table. Indeed, while Virginians and New Englanders were growing ever more assertive in their claims as British brothers, English opinion was moving in the opposite direction, quote, projecting a sense of difference and inferiority upon the colonists. In his pioneering study of symbols and nomenclature in the pre-revolutionary colonial and British presses, Richard Merritt found that before 1770, it was the British who most frequently referred to the colonies as America, often a disparaging term, while colonists were, quote, less willing than the British brethren to commit themselves definitely and strongly to the existence of an American community. Indeed, the first references in the colonial press to Americans rather than British colonists or Her Majesty's subjects only appeared in 1764. Meanwhile, the colonists reacted to the tax bills with great effusion of support for the king, whose sovereignty was universally acknowledged, while that of Parliament was held to be illegitimate. The usurpation of contracts made directly between colonists and earlier Stuart monarchs. This was true, for example, of the Sons of Liberty, sometimes seen as the first harbingers of the new nationalism. Quote, to judge by both their public resolutions and private correspondence, loyalty to the king was the most significant bond linking the intercolonial Sons of Liberties. A few years later, after good King George had been enthroned in Sam Adams' words, as, quote, a monster sunk in debauchery and spreading desolation and murder amongst men. And the defiant bells of independence have been rung in Philadelphia. Patriotic 
rhetoric continued to play on the bitterness of familial betrayal. In the famously spellbinding speech that Adams delivered on the steps of the Pennsylvania State House a few weeks after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, he talked about independence both as a birth and as a funeral. Quote, no man had greater veneration for Englishmen than I entertained. They were dear to me as branches of the same parental trunk and partakers to the same religion and laws. I still view with respect the remains of the Constitution, starting with the British Constitution, as I would a lifeless body which had once been animated by great and heroic soul. Meanwhile, the second proposition, that it was the war experience itself that nationalized identity, has different answers depending on whether one takes the view of state militias, the regular ranks, or the Continental Officer Corps. With few exceptions, militia officers and their yeoman soldiers remain staunch in their primary loyalty to their new state republics. But freeholders in arms, Charles Meyer reminds us, is only an accurate image for the early New England phase of the war, and perhaps later for the partisan warfare waged in the South. Quote, contrary to popular lore and some modern commentators, the well-to-do and the yeoman farmers seem to prefer staying at home instead of rushing to the front lines after the rage military the first campaign. Seizing on the idea that an army of citizen soldiers representing true Republican virtue, later generation of historians skewed the history of the Continental Army, ascribing the characteristics of the first year of the war to the war as a whole. Local and state militias frequently gave good accounts of themselves, as in the siege of Boston and the Patriot victories at Bennington and Saratoga, but always had to be looking over their shoulders at the harvest. Widespread destruction of farms and confiscations of livestock, quote, combined with the disappearance of foreign markets, forced families to abandon staple and surplus production and adopt subsistence farming. With this agricultural crisis and a growing shortage of farm labor in the background, only short-term enlistments and service in their own regions allowed farmer soldiers to balance their commitments while extended enlistments could lead to famished families and lost farms. As a result, the Continental Congress, desperate to strengthen the Continental line with long-term enlistments, came to rely increasingly on those not connected with the communities that enlisted them. These included large numbers of poor German and Irish immigrants, young unlanded farm laborers and the urban unemployed, as well as Catholic convicts, runaway indentured servants, and in the northern colonies, African Americans, many of whom had been paid to enlist as substitutes for wealthier men. It was a poor man's army, whose principal attractions were modest bounties, rations, and the promise of free land. But it was also an army whose deepening differences in status and pay made it almost as hierarchical as Her Majesty's Red Goods, beginning with the congressional mandate the restricted continental rank to gentlemen. This elite often regarded their troops with sheer contempt. Let the officers, Alexander Hamilton wrote, be men of sense and sentiment. And the nearer the soldiers approached the machines, perhaps the better. 
Charles Lee characterized his Virginia recruits, mostly boys recruited from the hard scrabble settlements of the Piedmont in the Shenandoah Valley as, quote, riffraff, dirty, mutinous, and disaffected. The army was theoretically financed by the Confederation's power to requisition revenue from the states, but the actual implementation was led to the states themselves. And Roger Brown estimates they provided 37% of the financing that Congress originally demanded. As a result, army wages went unpaid. Shoeless soldiers were forced to forage for food. Resentment spread through the ranks and desertions became common. The majority of regulars were left embittered by congressional betrayal. Washington and the other generals responded to their discontent with floggings and execution. Indeed, the commander-in-chief had his own elite police troops, the Marachazi Corps, to maintain order. Quote, mounted on horseback, these men took their place behind the last file of men on the battlefield and cut down any soldier who left the line, deserted on march. Increasing repression, not surprisingly, seeded more resistance and the growth not of a unifying nationalism as much as that of an embryonic class consciousness amongst the war's wage workers. Washington's attempt to change three-year enlistments into permanent wartime service was viewed as little more than a sentence to forced labor. Emphasizes Volunteers considered their enlistment contracts to be inviolable, and when Congress failed to honor the terms, viewed themselves as released from obligations, self-identified as brother soldiers, increasingly refused orders, deserted mutiny, and even marched arms in hand on Congress. Not surprisingly then that, quote, the latter years of the war made the colonial elites, including Continental Army officers, Increasingly afraid of the revolutionary tendencies of the armed lower class, only slightly connected to the communities that enlisted them. It was an army nightmare continuous that the Whigs had long feared might demand by collective action a reckoning of accounts with rifles and bayonets against themselves instead of the British. In a similar vein to nightmare, James Strait dwells on the bitter irony that, quote, Designed to build unity in the Confederation, the Continental Army teetered on the brink of destroying it. Instead of comprising simple citizen soldiers who represented the continent and who served selflessly, the Army's ranks contained many men who might have been disproportionately nationalistic but ended up feeling betrayed by their country. An increasingly disgruntled and populous rank and file, however, was only one side of the dangerous polarization. The officer corps, its top ranks appointed by Congress, not by state governments, was also unpaid, promised pensions that it doubted would be honored, and suffering from what was perceived as persistent disrespect. This posed a potentially even more dangerous threat to congressional control. In these troubled waters, the pioneering nationalist triumvirate of Superintendent of Finance Robert Morris his deputy, Governor Morris, no relation, and Alexander Hamilton went fishing for support amongst old rivals at Washington, such as Generals Horatio Gates, Arthur Sinclair, and Henry Knox, as well as their young, hot-blooded protégés. The triumvirate, Johnson writes, quote, 
saw the clamors of the creditors and the discontent of the officers, an opportunity to unite the two groups in a coup d'etat to establish the kind of government they've been able to establish through either constitutional processes or interpretations. With the failure of the latest attempt to impose a federal impose, Hamilton turned toward the army as a powerful engine for the nationalist cause, urging Washington to lead the cause. But the general bulk, let's open the floodgates of civil discord that would, quote, deluge our rising empire in blood. It's difficult then to find much evidence of popular nationalism strict, strict to a sense to, in the revolution. But there's abundant evidence that the war strengthened primary allegiances to each of the 13 republics, while often deepening the divisions between them. Max Saville has described how pre-revolutionary colonists had articulated Britishness with local patriotism, quote, a coupling of the sense of identity with the British nation, with a distinct consciousness of differences and smug self-satisfaction in citizens of any one of the colonies looked upon that colony as his country, and he felt a distinct patriotism or love of his land toward it, quote. Likewise, if the long struggle against Britain encouraged a large part of the white population to begin thinking of themselves as Americans, usually in the sense of the continental empire, this did not mean that their core loyalty was to an American nation. Rather, as the revolution unraveled the common culture of Britishness, it intensified state patriotism and birthed 13 strong nationalisms, 14 at the independent Republic of Vermont is included. In the relations with one another, Jensen wrote, the colonies had developed attitudes that can best be described by the term nationalistic. In spite of the social, racial, and economic affinities and the cohesive force of the English connection, they become practically independent political entities. Each delegate thought of his own colony as his country, as an independent nation in its dealings with England and its neighbors, with whom relations were often unfriendly. Savile adds, men who'd been long accustomed to speak of my country as Virginia or Massachusetts or South Carolina, long before the revolution this provincial or colonial patriotism had moved men without in any way conflicting with their common loyalty to their king as sovereign symbol of the whole British nation. It was probably natural that the state patriotism should have become the dominant loyalty in the new situation, and that it should have stood so strongly across the path toward the realization of a national concept quote. John Adams, meanwhile, sought to clear up the misconception amongst the European allies that a superordinate power was defined by the Articles of Confederation. Quote, Congress is not a legislative assembly, nor a representative assembly, but only a diplomatic assembly. James Monroe, for his part, praised the Declaration of Independence, first for transferring sovereignty to the people, and second, that the people meant, quote, the people of each colony, and not the people of all colonies in the aggregate the 13 distinct communities, not to one. Indeed, the declaration was unequivocal on this point, quote, as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, 
contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may do. On the question of the primacy of state patriotism, David Hendrickson, a historian whose views are consonant with the late nationalism thesis of Jensen, quotes from Thomas Burke, North Carolina's delegate to the Second Continental Congress, then the state's governor until he's captured by the British Army. Quote, when Burke examined the loyalties of Americans in 1777, he placed the accent on loyalties to states. The virtue most cultivated in Congress, he said, with that which most distinguishes a man in the state in which he resides, the grandeur and preeminence of the state will be the favorite passion of every man in it. Quote, Every effort to think continentally, Burke argued, had to first be framed in terms of state or sectional interest. This made state legislatures, not Congress, the primary theaters of political contestation. Indeed, the states immediately called upon in 1776 to draw up new designs for government, often were more absorbed in internal or interstate strife than with fighting the British invaders. These constitutional battles were frequently passionate reflections of the period's innumerable class, racial, and religious cleavages. State legislative battles also trained a new leadership generation, much larger and occupationally diverse than that of the colonial assemblies at the beginning of the 1770s. If the revolution had not created a coherent national consciousness, it is certainly, according to Alfred Young, quote, nationalized the threat of radicalism, which was earlier localized, agrarian revolts against direct taxation and artisanal demands for democratization, polarized the politics of nearly every state republic. The emergence of a truly nationalist camp, committed to the construction of a modern nation state with independent and restricted powers, capable of commanding recognition by the major powers, is not initially an intellectual and ideological endeavor that would await the unveiling of Alexander Hamilton's grand design in the Federalist Papers and in his first report on the public credit. The actual driving force was the pragmatic interest of state elites, increasingly looked to strong central government for solutions to four conjoined and seemingly insuperable problems. First, the defensive national economic sovereignty. Second, control of the Western frontier and the regulation of settlement. Third, the need for fundamental financial reforms to safeguard creditors and provide a stable monetary base for commerce. And fourth, and most importantly, a curb on the, quote, access of democracy that empowered farmers and artisans on state and local levels. Everywhere, conflicts over who would rule were tightly joined to the question of who would pay for the revolution. I abruptly end. All right. Thank you very much, Mike Davis, for sharing with us from your book in progress, Star-Spangled Leviathan, An Economic History of American Nationalism. We have time for some question and discussion. I want to invite my co-director of the Social Justice Initiative and colleague in American Studies at Trinity College, Christina Heatherton, to start us off with the first question. Okay, no pressure. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And Mike, thanks so much for a really wonderful talk. I wanted to just ask you, 
something about the broader motivation of the project. So, you know, you provide this really excellent rebuttal to fantasies of U.S. nationalism. And, you know, so while we inherit this idea that a coherent national consciousness was forged through the Revolutionary War, you seem to be arguing that U.S. nationalism as an anachronism conceals the embryonic class consciousness and rage of a flogged, embittered, and mutinous conscripts of the war. So I wanted to ask whether this new project is motivated to show the fraudulence of the fantasy of U.S. nationalism, or is it to argue that U.S. nationalism continues to perform a mystifying historical function? Well, I'm afraid the motivation is far more abstract, which is for a long time I've been interested in debates on nationalism and the creating of nations. But I've been struck with very few exceptions that hardly ever really concerns the politics of nationalism, or rather, should I say, the political construction of nationalism in kind of real time. It tends to be debates about national character, national identity, ideology, and a lot of it for that reason. It's, I think, almost useless for the purposes of understanding actual history. The theme of the book really is that American, what I call curricular nationalism, that is the formalized definitions of what the nation is and what people are supposed to believe and how it should define its history, such as offered by George Bancroft in this increasingly popular and adopted textbooks. This really is all post facto and what characterizes the country from before the French and Indian War to the Civil War itself, is there is unanimous consensus that America was an empire. And one of the principal causes of the revolution was the decision by the British to stop the expansion of the southern and middle colonies over the Allegheny Mountains to impose the proclamation line to assure the First Nations of the Ohio Valley, British support, and then to turn over control of the Ohio Valley and the Trans-Appalachian frontier to the province of Quebec. Now, all the great American patriots at the time were land speculators to an extent that is sometimes astonishing. Uh, Washington, Franklin, all the other Virginians, Pennsylvanians, and so on, they mapped out these great land empires to exploit personally in the West. And this just scuppered what to them was their ultimate dream of of profiting from uh, America's vast resources and continued influx of immigrants. So the idea of an empire precedes that of a nation and, you know, remained the consensus. Almost nobody disagreed with that. Hamilton, to some extent, but this was because He was searching for modus operandi with the British. So what you have before the Civil War is constant instability in alliances between different sections of the country, definitions over who was a citizen or suffrage or the status of First Nations and slaves and so on, without really any cohesive institutional matrix that was agreed on other than the idea of empire and expansion. I mean, the primordial thing in all this was political leaders had to guarantee 
a new frontier of opportunity to successive generations. But this took the form rather than of an institutionalized, stable definition of the nation and so on, as a series of programs put forward that invoked an impassioned supporters as a national vision. But in fact, you know, sets of particular interests alloyed together and never really on a truly national basis. I mean, playing the early Calhoun, for instance, their whole vision, developmental vision, was an alliance between the West and the South, between slavery and the free settlement in the Ohio Valley. This was overthrown years later with the development of canals in the Great Lakes. So you created the Civil War alliance of the West with the Northeast. But all of this was protean and unchangeable in American politics. The underlying interests, economic interests of American politics can make great leaps, as in the case of Calhoun, who totally repudiated his early nationalism, beginning as a war hawk in 1812 because of the Cotton Revolution and the South's increasing economic integration with Britain. So he became an advocate, not just of states' rights, but above all, of free trade, when in fact the interest of much of the West and the Northeast was in protecting American industries and products. Thanks for this, Mike. And we have a few questions uh, from the audience. The first is just a comment from our colleague at Trinity College, Professor Deverian Baldwin, who just says, uh, no questions, but as a longtime fan and urbanist, I want to thank you for all your work as a model and thank you for this presentation. So that's from Deverian Baldwin. We also have an anonymous- That's uh, very gracious, thank you. Yes, and uh, uh, thanks Professor Baldwin for the question um, and comment. Uh, anonymous attendee, wants to thank you for your important work and to say that it's so inspiring. Um, and we have two questions. I don't know if you want to take one at a time or take them both together, Mike. One at a time. Uh, one at a time. So the first is from Tom Reifer. To what extent do we see the development of right-wing laboratories among the Republican Party, most recently in Florida, including versus Disney, as continuing, albeit in a radically different context, of political entrepreneurship related to the development of ideologies for another American, now first century, but perhaps in an Octavia Butler parable of the sower and talents mode oriented toward internal enemies at home, including black people, Latinos, Jews, and all the others. So that's from Tom Reifer. Well, definitely you could describe Trumpian conservatism as a kind of programmatic nationalism of a most radical and extreme type. Though the difference between the 20th and 19th century was the creation of this unifying matrix of belief and policies that I argued was missing in 19th century or so volatile in the 19th century. The Cold War, of course, is the epitome of that, but already with Wilsonian internationalism and the expansion of the powers of the federal government under his administration and during you know, the First World War. Also, the incorporation of uniform nationalist dogma in school curriculum, the adoption of uniform rights of patriotic observance and loyalism 
Although it's interesting to point out that a lot of that was actually sponsored by the Bellamyites in the 1890s, followers of the kind of prophetic middle-class socialist Edward Bellamy, who were called the nationalist clubs and crusaded for the adoption of the Pledge of Allegiance, of singing the Star-Spangled Banner and, and, and so on. In the 19th century, these rituals were not uniform at all. So what we think of it as the kind of curriculum or theology of American nationalism actually appeared fairly late in the day, particularly when you look at other countries. I argue in the book that one nationalism, the way it compels and shapes other nationalisms. So that American nationalism is a response to English nationalism, an exclusive English nationalism that basically exiled Americans or the Protestant elites of Ireland from their previous Britishness. French adapted to the English. Haiti produced one of the first original nationalisms outside of Europe. The memory, of course, of most of Europe was still organized into multinational empires. But the nationalism, or rather the set of rituals, observances, and the concept of the state that was most influential was that of the French Third Republic. And this was widely adopted throughout the world. It's not like each country found its own individual path. There's a tremendous amount of adoption, emulation, or kind of forced assimilation as the nation state became the sine qua non for the survival of cultures or nationalities. That's great. Thank you so much, Mike. And we have a couple more questions here. The first is from Matthew Collado, who asks, and I'm quoting him now, what view does Mike have of the framing of slaveholders' revolt regarding the American Revolution as drawn out perhaps most well-known by Gerald Horn in the counter-revolution of 1776. And that's from... Gerald Horn is absolutely right. Although the calculations made by people of color, both slave and, and free, was determined by their circumstances. You know, the British army basically offered freedom to slaves who would fight for it and continued to honor that commitment in some ways. One of the first and most important demands at the treaty, uh, signing the Treaty of Paris that ended the Revolutionary War was turning over the slaves that the British had emancipated or enlisted in the British Army, returning them to their slave owners. This was another obsession. It became the absolute first priority on the American agenda in negotiating with Britain in terms of the settlement. In the North, of course, there were instances in states where slavery was entirely marginal or even absent, where people of color decided to join the revolutionary side. But John Horn's thesis is awfully important for us to understand. When you think about the revolutionary war as a revolution, what was the most revolutionary thing about the revolutionary war? was the slave revolt that uh, went along with it. Thank you so much, Mike. And I think we have time for about two more questions. The first is from Mark Gary, who says as follows. First, heartfelt thanks to Mike from his old comrade, Mark Gary, for this bracingly original corrective 
the star-spangled myths of a patriotic band of brothers. Second, I'm curious to know if Mike will address anywhere in the book the appropriation or weaponization of such myths by the Tea Party movement, MAGA Nation, and other factions of today's right. Well, a few years ago, when I was younger and healthier, I thought of doing this, you know, bringing it up to present. And then I, when I saw the enormity of research that this involved, I said, well, let's do the 19th century. And more recently, I thought I'll be lucky if I get to the Civil War. So MAG is not on the agenda. Mark, hello, you're wonderful. Mark is one of the most creative and unorthodox and brilliant writers around. I'm so delighted you tuned into the program. Thanks. So we have two more. And uh, the first is from my friend and colleague, Jennifer Greenberg, who says, I have been reading your work for 20 years and want to thank you for this talk. I'm interested to hear you speak about the military or perhaps even our militia's role within the nationalisms you have discussed today. Is there something crucial we might ask based on this comparative framework, too, in terms of the particularities of American militarism? Well, we should never forget that the Second Amendment was adopted following the absolute destruction of the regular American army. The battle, I think it was the Battle of uh, Falling Timbers, is that right? Where it was much bigger than Custer's Massacre, 1600. The whole regular army was wiped out. And so there's really nothing between the Western Indian nations or British reconquest other than the state militias. The state militias had a multi-class and complicated character during the revolution and afterwards, meaning that some of the militias were composed of, of the elites. Others were composed of poor farmers or even artisans. And the events of Shays' Rebellion, of the Whiskey Rebellion, and so on, were encountered between really two sides of the militia movement. But the role of militias, of course, changed. And after the Civil War, militias were basically used to suppress labor disputes or insurgencies by by people of color and were totally dominated by the local elites. And the whole armory in New York City, the old famous armory building, was built as a response to the railroad strikes of the 1870s. But in the early republic, the revolutionary period, you had all these popular militias, which posed a real problem because they could mobilize three or 4,000 farmers in arms against the interests of the big merchants on the coast. Great. And actually, if it's okay, Mike, I've got two more. We have one from George Amoth. And if I'm mispronouncing your name, I apologize. And then we'll conclude with a question from Deborah Weber. So the first from George If conscripts and property classes did not share a singular national vision, but rather held regional interests, is it fair to say both sets of actors within their regions also didn't share a common view about the nation? In short, how granular do the differences get, and how are we to study these differences in the archive? Well, on the most granular level, there are interesting exceptions because the patriotic leaders of North Carolina had suppressed a revolt by the upland farmers very violently. A lot of those upland farmers 
Scots-Irish and Highland Scots sided with the British. This is the basis of class politics, not an ideology. But the traditional thesis of the progressive school is that all the colonies were driven down the middle by conflicts between poor agrarians and family farmers and the commercial elites and sometimes the big slave owners, some of the biggest slave owners, of course, ended up being people like, you know, Jefferson and uh, Madison, who require a slightly more complicated answer to explain why they became advocates of democracy. But this is the fundamental question, and it's what led to the Constitutional Convention in the first place. It was the dominant matter, how to gain control over the backcountry and over the uh, parts of the inner city, over like the Philadelphia artisans who were fierce advocates of democracy, almost in the French style. So that fundamental class conflict, though it was had its complex dimensions, divided each colony, each state, right down the middle, and provided the largest single impetus for elites in each state to come together to try and work out a strong national government and to wrest control over the issuance of money and credit from state legislatures, which were often dominated, where where poor farmers and artisans often could wield real power. I mean, that's the really major thing that was at stake in 1787. Thanks very much, Mike. And last but not least, from our friend and colleague, Debra Weber, who says, thank you so much, Mike, and sending greetings on May Day with enthusiasm. Mike, your work is so needed with its interruption of older interpretations of U.S. nationalism. I'm anxious to read more. When will it be out? Abrazos, Debra. To be honest with you, I don't think it, it will be out. I'm focused right now on finding healthy moments when I can write the short pieces about the present situation. But it's been enormous education to read through a hundred or so books on early American history and reframe debates about nationalism. There's one book I wish, I forgot to write down the title of it, but a book I've come to admire enormously, which is a book about how Polish nationalism, okay, revolutionary nationalism, which was, I mean, the Poles were the great heroes of the democratic movement, not in Western Europe, but in the United States, everywhere, about how Polish nationalism went from being internationalist and revolutionarily democratic to becoming an ethnic and sometimes, you know, viciously anti-Semitic nationalism. And there's a brilliant example of treating nationalism, first of all, as political history to be comprehended through the classes and the interest groups who use nationalism in one way or another. That's great. Well, we'll certainly look forward to Star-Spangled Leviathan, an economic history of American nationalism. Mike, I want to thank you uh, on behalf of my colleagues at Trinity College for joining us today, sharing this excerpt of your work in progress. And celebrating May Day together. Thank you very much, Mike. Before you leave, Jordan, can you hold up the pile of Fred Files books? That's what I want to do. I want to say thanks, everyone, for joining us. And 
It's been a real delight to honor Fred File, the author of a number of works, including Another Tale to Tale, published by Verso, White Guys, Studies in Postmodern Domination and Difference, also by Verso. He also was the author of a book of short stories, What They Tell You to Forget. And I'd be remiss if I didn't note that he was the co-editor with Mike of the year left two toward a rainbow socialism, which was co-edited along with Mike Springer and Manning Marable. This was published, I believe, in, in 1986, also by Verso. He was a prolific author, a beloved scholar here at Trinity. And our audience should know that Mike has kindly donated his honorarium and matched it to have a new table dedicated to Fred in a garden memorializing him outside of the English department. And so uh, I thank the chair of English, Chris Hager, and Fred's longtime colleague, Sheila Fisher, for helping that come into being. So thanks for your generosity, Mike. And uh, our campus is really grateful to you for this work. And thank everyone in the audience who was able to join us today. It's been a real delight to celebrate May Day together. We'll post a recording of today's talk on our website, socialjusticeinitiative.domains.trendcall.edu. Please stay tuned. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.